So one day, a, a rich man came to Jesus and asked him what he had to do to have eternal life. This is a really interesting question, a really interesting thing for this rich man to do because in that culture, in that day, and in that age, those with financial wealth and great possessions were considered to be blessed by God. And so here was this man who was outwardly exhibiting what people considered to be God's blessing, coming to Jesus and acknowledging that something isn't right, that, that all is not as it's supposed to be, that he needs more. This young man asked Jesus, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Notice the, the young man's request, what do I have to do? And Jesus comes into this conversation with this young man very much on his terms. He, he says, you want to talk about what you have to do? Well, let's talk about it. Keep the commandments. And I, you know, I can't miss the humor here where the young man says, well, great, which ones? As if there's some that he doesn't have to keep, right? And you build the fence for me, Jesus, and I'll do the things inside the fence and go ahead and tell me what I don't have to worry about. That way I won't worry about them. It's really fascinating in this entire exchange, and perhaps what's really fascinating is not so much what Jesus does say, but what Jesus doesn't say. Because it is in what Jesus doesn't say that we see what the man lacks. Right? So this is where Jesus escalates the conversation when he says, well, what do I need to do? Which, which ones should I keep? And Jesus says, you shall not Murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus answers the rich man by telling him to keep the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth, and the fifth commandments with a little Leviticus 19, 18 mixed in. And the rich man says, I do all these, this is great, I do them. But what do I not have? And that's where Jesus begins to sort of pull the curtains back to show light, Jesus' own light, into the darkness of the man's heart. He puts his finger directly upon the point and directly upon the problem. Jesus said to him in verse 21, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And when the man heard this, when a man heard Jesus' diagnosis, when the man heard Jesus' prescription, the young man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus then turns to his disciples, and he says to them, what is the main point of this passage? He says to them, what is the main point of this sermon? Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And this theological statement he then illustrates with this amazing word picture. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then somewhere, a camel laughed because of the impossibility of it all. Now, I know that 
in, in studying this passage, I know that there's, there's thoughts and there's some ideas that, that maybe the, the eye of the needle was a very small gate in, in, the, in the walls of the city of Jerusalem, or maybe that it is a very narrow pass in the mountains between Jerusalem and Jericho. That very well may be. I don't know. What I do know is that Jesus, what he means when he says that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He means it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, the sewing utensil, than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So what is it about this rich man in particular that leads him to leave Jesus behind? And, and what is it about wealth that makes uh, entering into the kingdom of heaven difficult? So difficult that a camel would be able to uh, be like thread and pass through the eye of a needle. More than or easier than a wealthy person to enter heaven. Well, let's look at, again, the list of the commandments that Jesus gives. And conspicuous by their absence are the first, the second, the third, the fourth, and tenth commandments. As we think about what Jesus doesn't say, as we think about those things that are conspicuous by their absence, let's remember together the narrative context of Exodus chapter 20, where it fits in, in God's story with his people. God has rescued his people from Egypt. By the time of Exodus chapter 20, they have received his grace of deliverance. They have passed through the waters of rescue, and they have come now to the foot of of Sinai. And there at the end of chapter 19, God speaking through Moses reminded the people of the grace that they have received when he says, I saved you. I chose you. Now be my people and respond to my grace by living in my way. And as God unfolds through Moses what his way of life is to be for those who are his people, it begins with the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments begin with this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then God goes on to unfold what it looks like to be his people. The commandments, the Ten Commandments, were to mark the people as God's people. The Ten Commandments were to mark the people as recipients of His grace, as, as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so the obedience of His commandments and of His law was the only appropriate response to the grace of rescue from slavery in Egypt. When it comes to the commandments, when it comes to God's law, it's easy for us to begin to think that God is sort of like that very strict school teacher that we had in third grade where you couldn't do nothing uh, without getting in trouble. Mitch is shaking his head yes. I think we need to reframe how we consider the Ten Commandments, remembering that this is God's revelation about how to be his people. And because God is the creator of all that is, God thus knows the best way to be human. And God thus knows the best way to be his people. So the best way to be human is to honor God as God. The best way to be his people is to worship nothing else but God himself. 
And so the law serves to keep people orientated to God, and in the case of sin and repentance, to reorientate people back to God and the right way to live. Within the Ten Commandments, the first four deal with that sort of vertical relationship between person and God. The last six deal with what we could call a horizontal relationship between people, God's people. And Jesus, in his conversation in Matthew chapter 19, in his conversation with the rich man, focuses entirely on the last six of the commandments, except for the tenth. And what is the tenth commandment? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. The Tenth Commandment, along with those dealing with how humans are to believe and behave in relation to God, are omitted by Jesus precisely because that is the young man's problem. He's not murdering anyone. He's not committing adultery. He's not stealing. But he is coveting. And St. Paul says in, chapter, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, that covetousness is idolatry. And so by Jesus' omission of these very specific commandments, he is actually shining light on the rich man's covetousness, his greed, and thus his idolatry. The question is, what do I lack? Jesus is essentially saying, you lack God because you have an idol. The rich man covets. He is greedy, and so he does not and cannot have God alone as his God. He has an idol. The rich man at the very least, is guilty of violating this 10th commandment, do not covet. And by violating the 10th commandment, do not covet, he necessarily then breaks the first and the second commandments. He worships something other than God, and he has an idol. That's why it's difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. There's an idol in the way. We need to give this rich man his due. Recognize what he does in this particular passage He knows that something isn't right. He knows that despite his wealth, despite his great possessions, something's not adding up. And this rich man recognizes Jesus to be the one who can offer him assistance. Maybe this rich man has internally begun to feel the truth that the author of Ecclesiastes pointed out when he wrote, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income This is also vanity. It's also nothing. Sam Polk was a Wall Street trader obsessed with making money. And by the time he was 30 years old, Mr. Polk had made more than $5 million in bonuses alone. Slowly he came to realize, however, that money was not enough when he said, one of the things I learned on Wall Street was no matter how much money I made, The money was never going to do it. Maybe that's where this rich young man is when he comes before Jesus. He says, I do these. What do I not have? Seeking from Jesus something to do, something in his own power and his own ability. Like a good businessman, this young, rich young man comes to exchange goods and services The rich man living a life of self-dependent idolatry and moralism thought he could save himself. And again, we have to give him credit because he's not blind to his need. 
Our heart breaks when we read these words. He, he was sorrowful and he went away because he had great possessions. He just didn't think he'd have to give up his wealth in order to get eternal life. Because like wealth, he thought he could earn it and keep it through his own hard work. He thought that he could live a good enough life and put God into his debt to get what he deserved. But Jesus, Jesus calls upon the rich man to allow him to topple and destroy the idol of wealth. Remember, an idol is a, a thing, often a good thing, that is, is made the ultimate thing. And as such, a person seeks fulfillment, purpose, satisfaction, and salvation in that thing. And Jesus, in his words to this rich young man, says, Stop depending on your wealth. Stop serving your money. Give it all away. Give it all up. Come and depend upon me for life, for salvation. Notice what Jesus says. He says, go and sell your possessions, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven. And then he says, come and follow me. Knock down the idol and allow Jesus to replace the idol. Or more, maybe more to the point, let Jesus knock down the idol and replace the idol with himself. This isn't an issue of Jesus giving this man the secret of earning eternal life. Jesus here is not a self-help guru. He's not giving the Tony Robbins 10 secret steps to success. Jesus here is saying, get the rich and get that which stands in the way between you and God. Get that out of the way. In Mark chapter 9, for example, Jesus says very much the same thing. about He talks about dealing ruthlessly with sin when he says, if your right hand leads you into sin, cut it off. He calls upon the rich man to get rid of his wealth, his idol, precisely because it stands in the way of God. Jesus' diagnosis here is, is too accurate, and his prescription is too painful. Jesus diagnoses idolatry. He prescribes surgery, but the surgery that Jesus prescribed was too radical, too invasive, and the rich man cannot bear it. And so Jesus' words about uh, the difficulty of a rich person entering into the kingdom of heaven is about idolatry. And Jesus' words about the rich person entering into heaven only with great, incredible difficulty is shocking to the disciples. Wealth in that culture, and that's not dissimilar to our own, but wealth in that culture was thought of as a sign of God's divine favor and of God's blessing. The wealthy in that line of thinking should have had a leg up, so to speak, on the entrance into the kingdom. Kind of like Alabama has a leg up on winning the national championship. And so when Jesus says it's difficult, the disciples can't help but respond, what about us? If the wealthy can't even get into heaven without great difficulty, what about us, the people who are poor, the people who have given up all these things to come and follow you? If the wealthy can't get it, what about us? You can almost hear their desperation. Jesus says, he's looking at them, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are are possible. Let's talk about dragons. Eustace was the unwilling and unpleasant companion to Edmund and Lucy in C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Eustace had a tendency of being a pain in the neck or a pain in a certain part of the body 18 inches below the neck and on the south side. 
He had a tendency of being in the way. He was obnoxious. He even argued with the little warrior mouse, Reepicheep. If you haven't read The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, you need to check it out. It's like book number five in the Chronicles of Narnia. But at one point in their adventure, Eustace wandered off on this island, and he found a cave full of gold. And taken with its beauty and with its worth, he claimed it as his own. He takes a golden bracelet, and he slips it onto his arm. This is my gold. And he decides to, to lay down and take a little nap while he's waiting out a rainstorm. But as Lewis writes, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. When he woke up, he was a dragon. When he woke up, the, the bracelet that he had put on his arm as a little boy was now tight and causing incredible pain, cutting out the circulation of his foreleg. He was miserable. His arm hurt where the bracelet was cutting into him. He was terribly lonely and terribly alone. He had all of his wealth. He had all of the dragon's hoard, but he was empty inside. Finally, when Eustace was at the end of himself and at the end of his rope, Aslan the lion came to him, and he took him to the top of a mountain in the midst of a beautiful garden, and there in the midst of this beautiful garden they came to a fresh pool of water, so fresh that there was water bubbling up from beneath. It was like a well. And Eustace, in his dragon state, longed to plunge into the water to have a bath, to be clean. But Aslan told him, first you must undress. And so Eustace, understanding that Aslan meant that he must shed his dragon skin, Eustace began to scratch at his skin with his claws. And the scales began to peel off. And Eustace says, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like it does after an illness, or as if I was a banana. So I started to go down into the well for my bath. But, but just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. He was still a dragon. So Eustace began to scratch and tear at his skin to, to peel it off two more times. And each time he stepped out of the shed skin only to find that he was still a dragon underneath. And Aslan the lion says, you will have to let me undress you. We'll let Eustace tell the story. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty near desperate now. So I just laid flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And then when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. He peeled the beastly stuff right off, and there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been, I turned into a boy again. We don't have to try very hard to see the connection between Eustace, the rich young man, and ourselves. With dragonish thoughts in his heart, Eustace had an idol of money and it turned him into a dragon. And the only thing that could save him was the peeling of the skin by Aslan. 
blinded by our sins and our idols in this very specific case, the idol of money, we may recognize that something is not right, that things are out of line, and we, like the rich young man or Eustace, will seek to do it ourselves, even asking God what we have to do. But folks, entrance into the kingdom of heaven based upon merit and hard work and earning is impossible. It simply can't be done. Nothing and no one can live with the perfect righteousness that God requires. No amount of money can buy it. No amount of blood, sweat, and tears can earn it. God has to do it. And God can do the impossible. With God, all things are possible. With God, the perfect righteousness required is given through faith in the perfectly righteous one, Jesus. With God, all things are possible as all come before him as beggars in need of bread. And through faith, God gives to them the bread of life, Jesus. With God, even the wealthy can enter into the kingdom of heaven because with God, idols can be toppled as God can and does and will change hearts. Jesus desired to heal and restore the rich young man. Jesus desired to overthrow his idol of wealth so that he might come into the kingdom. Jesus wanted to peel the dragon skin off and uncover the man inside. But blinded by the influence of his idol, deceived by self-dependence, enslaved by the harsh master money, the man could not see his deepest need, perhaps even worse, he could see it, but was unwilling to undergo the painful surgery required by Jesus. And that's the difference between the rich man and the difference between Eustace. Eustace laid on his back and allowed Aslan to tear. The rich young man was sorry and he walked away. Wealth is an idol and that idol is a harsh master. It is with difficulty that the rich enter the kingdom of heaven but it is possible as Jesus becomes the king of the heart and as Jesus topples the idol of wealth. And that is good news. That is gospel news. Wealth was an idol then, and wealth is an idol now. And perhaps we, in the most affluent nation in the world, in the wealthiest society and culture, really need to be aware of the idolatry of wealth. Wealth is an idol, and that idol is a harsh master. It is with difficulty that the rich enter the kingdom of heaven, but it is possible as Jesus becomes the king of the heart and topples the idol of wealth. The kind King Jesus desires to remove our idols so that we might know him, and knowing him, we might have life. This is gospel. This is good news. We are, all of us, sinners in need of God's amazing heart work. And that amazing heart work is available in, through, and by Jesus. We are, all of us, used to turned into dragons, needing Jesus to peel us out so that we can be who he wants us to be, worshiping God with no idols in the way, receiving grace for eternal life. This amazing heart work that is needed is available in, through, and only by Jesus. And so we are called to trust in him, to count him as treasure, to count him as king of the heart, and to enter into the kingdom of heaven.
I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.